Hey there, Film Buds. Welcome back to the Film Buds podcast. This is episode 199. I'm your host, Paul. And I'm Lauren. And we are continuing our holiday theme uh, today with an episode called Criminal Christmas. Uh, and so we decided to go and and we're doing three films this this week, actually. Um, one of them was meant to happen last week, but it still kind of worked with... I thought that it still fit with the idea of crime at the at the holidays. I think that it's interesting, you know, I a lot of people associate, you know, Christmas movies with Hallmark rom-coms and stuff like that, but really, you know, when you look at it, a lot of the other thing that you then get are, you know, sort of like action movies or crime stories or stuff like that, which I find interesting. No, yeah. I mean, I think that that's even mirrored with what's coming out on, like, TV right now with Hawkeye being set at Christmas, and that's very much like a crime thriller action story as well. Mm-hmm. So, no, you're. I, th- I feel like you're right, honestly. Yeah, because, you know, the, the controversial, and it happens every year, even though I think that it's silly that the debate happens every year. Die Hard is always brought up, the Lethal Weapon movies, Iron Man 3... Um, well, I mean, it gets into the debate of, is a movie a Christmas movie just because it is set at Christmas? True. Um, and I guess my question actually going off of that, what do you, what, what's your answer? I mean, I'm going to go with yeah, because I think that picking Christmas as a time and, um, setting your story during that time affects what, what the story is. Gosh, that was... You're so eloquent. <laughs> no, I, I get what you were getting at. By placing it at Christmas, unless you literally just completely ignore it in full, then our characters are participating in the holiday season in some capacity. There is usually always some sort of countdown, you know, to Christmas yeah. around this time. Or the characters are only together this way because it's Christmas. Yes. Um, so no, I completely see where you're getting at with that. Before we jump into our, our three movies, um, L.A. Confidential, Eight Women, and In Bruges, I thought that I would let y'all in on a little Christmas film history fun fact. Uh, so Christmas movies have actually been going on as long as film has been going on. Uh, the very first Christmas film that we recognize as a, as a movie was like a, very short British film called Santa Claus that came out in 1898. Uh, And a lot of the early Christmas films were all adaptation, not all, but a lot of them were adaptations, especially of the Christmas Carol story from Dickens. Um, But then you also had, like, Twas the Night Before Christmas, the poem that got adapted into a movie. Um, So Christmas movies have, have been happening as long as 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 film has been happening, which I thought was interesting. For some reason, I, I guess I kind of assumed that maybe it came a little bit later, but it makes sense that something that ensnares people and the, and the attention so thoroughly would be represented on film much earlier than I had assumed it would be. Well, no, yeah, because of the fact that um, Christmas music movies usually have um, like a magical realism, and it's it's an escapism, and I, I, I can see why early films would would still pull on that because mm-hmm. it's it's an it's an it's an easy win. 
Yeah, and, you know, a lot of those early films were very short films as well. So, you know, short, sweet, little Christmas stories. You know, Santa showing up and, and you know, saving the day. You know, introduce a problem, fix it with the miracles of Christmas. Yeah. Kind of a thing. Especially when, you know, in the 1890s and early 1900s, you know, life was harder mm-hmm. than it is now. And I'm sure that for for people who were living in in those times that the, even a Christmas movie was just so refreshingly light compared to their everyday. Absolutely. Um so it's a it's an interesting phenomena that has stayed with us, but I feel like as Christmas has also changed, so too has and as film has changed, so too have Christmas movies, you know. Now they're it's it, I feel like it's very rare to get a, a truly great Christmas movie. Well, just because there's so many of them. Yeah. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I saw a thing um, earlier this month that was talking about how, and I think that I mentioned it in the Hanukkah episode, that there's like almost 200 movies coming out this year alone across all streaming platforms and that sort of thing. That are Christmas movies in some capacity, a lot of Christmas rom-coms or Christmas prince and princess royalty sort of things, you know. It's it's kind of prolific uh, how much there is this weird um, sub-industry in, in entertainment of people just making Christmas movies. And honestly, it is kind of like romance novels in that in that sense where they're all the same when you really boil it down it's all the same kind of story they all have the same beats they all try and tug on the same heartstrings and it can feel really just blah Mm -hmm. at a certain point you know it's really hard to find a gem amongst just the plethora of samey movies that get put out every year and you know for all i know there is one in there that i could watch and be like wow this is a tiny little great intelligent well-made version of this thing but it's such a deluge and and you'd be you'd be watching christmas movies all fucking year yeah honestly (laughs) i think that that's maybe the goal they're like we're gonna we're gonna make you if you wanted to watch every day of december a christmas movie we're gonna have something for you we got you covered horrifying um and and it's interesting because also you know as there has been more calls for representation, you've also seen increases, you know, in representation in those stories, you know, even though it wasn't necessarily one of the best versions of that, of a Christmas film, Happiest Season, last year, which we reviewed, um, you know, had a had a queer romance at the heart of it. It was a lesbian romance that was the dynamic of that. So also, the other thing that I think is allowing people to proliferate more and more is that you can go and you can start to include just people who haven't been included in the Christmas narrative before. Yeah, while also still not changing any of those beats. You know, you can literally just change change the pronouns, change the character names, and have the exact same story told to you with different faces. Yeah, because, you know, um, not to be dismissive, I guess, of Happiest Season in any kind of way, but it's a, it's a Christmas guess-who's-coming-to-dinner kind of story. You know, of or, um, you know, like, hey, Jaffo, you know, it's this people are coming together 
and there are these expectations, and we don't want to have any conflict right now, you know, this is supposed to be a happy time, so let's try and obfuscate and hide certain things, and, um, yeah, so, you know, it's, it's an interesting genre, it's not one that, yeah, I guess I'm overly fond of. Well, also, I think that it is one of those you, you, you just said about, um, trying to, trying to encapsulate it being a happy time of year, honestly, at a certain point makes it, makes people dread it all the more because of the fact that you can't really force anybody to, to be happy. Mm-hmm. And this season kind of is, is supposed to feel like that. And I can understand why people can end up finding it very depressing because, you know, I'm supposed to feel a certain kind of way. Why don't I? Exactly. No, yeah, that's a really good point. And also, when you're trying to put that feeling into a movie, it can come across, if you don't do it right, it can come across as disingenuous. Mm-hmm. No, honestly, and that's why I've really enjoyed our, our alternate Christmas movie um, exploration that we've been going on. Because at the end of the day, I've, I've found more interest in these movies than I've found in, in classics or, or, you know, the deluge, as you put it, of Christmas movies that we, we have available to us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because I think, one, it's, for the most part, with a few exceptions, it's been nothing but new content, you mm-hmm. know, for me. Not new in the concept of, like, it's just out. Most of it has been new to me. Um, and it has all of the things that, that Christmas movies have, but have delivered them in such inventive and fun ways. Um, and has also just made it, you know, to, to your point, uh, just just a little bit different and sometimes freshening things up and 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 coming at the holiday season from a different angle is really all you need yeah so um for all of those people out there who are making all of these cheap copycat movies take a note maybe try something different or you, you go out and try and copycat from another country you know? you know do something different as you put it but you know if if you don't want to even try and come up with your own thing I'm sure that you could go back 20, 30 years to some, you know, obscure other part of the world Christmas movie and go, man, that thing really works. I can translate that and put it in English and make that a modern day Christmas movie. Yeah. Hey, whatever floats your boat, just stop making Prince movies. I don't I don't know whose fantasy that is, but stop it. Or honestly, um, I don't I'm not sure that we ever really need to do another adaptation of like a Christmas carol. Or The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at you, Benedict. Um, but no, it's it's definitely been an interesting dive so far. I've been liking it. Uh, again, today we're doing Criminal Christmas. And, you know, we're dealing with the naughty side of the, of the spirit of, how, of Christmas. And the, the films that we selected, you know, it, we could have gone Lethal Weapon or Kiss Kiss Bang Bang really Shane Black's whole oeuvre. Uh, but I decided to go and and poke around and look at some other options. Uh, our first, not our first, but one of our films, Eight, Eight Women, was actually supposed to, like I said, be included last week. The DVD just didn't get here in time. Actually, we had already like recorded, edited, and gotten the episode ready to post, and the DVD showed up. And so one of these was supposed to be an international Christmas, but it still works here because it's a murder mystery. Uh, And then our other two are L.A. Confidential, which comes from the 90s, 
um, and In Bruges, uh, which is a Martin McDonough film, Martin McDonough's first film. So I think that they all, in their own way, touch on Christmas mm-hmm. um, to varying degrees. I actually, I think In Bruges is the most Christmassy of them all, but we can get into that when we start talking about it. Um, and I guess without any further ado, we shall jump into our first movie. Uh, we're going to be going chronologically, so we'll be beginning with L.A. Confidential. And as always, we have a clip, so take a listen. They were three cops who had nothing in common. Freeze! Big V, what are you doing here? Hey, you know, man, keeping the streets safe, boys. One would do anything to get ahead. You're truly prepared to be despised within a department? Yes, sir, I am. One had his own brand of justice. How's it gonna look in your report? It'll look like justice. That's what the man got. And one loved the spotlight. What exactly do you do on the show, Jack? I teach Brett Chase how to walk and talk like a cop. So that was L.A. Confidential. It came out in 1997. It's directed by Curtis Hansen. And it stars uh, Russell Crowe, Guy Pearce, Kim Basinger, James Cromwell, Danny DeVito, David Strathairn, and, you know, unfortunately it does also have Kevin Spacey. Uh, But, you know, he is a known... uh, sex criminal, and for the purpose of the review, we'll really just honestly refer to the character of Jack. You know, it's not it's not Kevin. We're not talking about Kevin or virtuizing Kevin. We will be talking about his character Jack, primarily, just as a little heads up. Uh, the premise is, as corruption grows in 50s Los Angeles, three policemen, one straight-laced, one brutal, and one sleazy, investigate a series of murders with their own brand of justice. Um, And it's also an adaptation of a a novel written by James Elroy, who also wrote the Black Dahlia novel that was adapted into a film in the early 2000s. Uh, Dear, what did you think of this one? I thought that this movie was really interesting. Um, In a... This is how cops are, kind of way, you know. Um, they they really frame these nineteen fifties cops with all of their their own personal corruptions and the corruptions of the system itself, very accurately, mm-hmm. I would say. And it's it was a really interesting window into a side of a time period that we don't usually get to see too often. No, I think that's pretty fair. Um, So this is a movie that I've seen several times before. It's actually one of my favorites. I think it's a really, really well done film. I think it captures the period very uh, accurately. It's very obviously a big touchstone for L.A. Noir, the game that came out from Rockstar Games a few years ago. And to your point, I think that we look at cop corruption and narratives of corrupt systems of justice as a largely modern narrative, like a very modern narrative, you know, the 70s sort of onward, I feel like, is how often corruption is sort of framed within cop stories. Um, This is the time of Dragnet, 
you know, the shiny boys in blue in the newsreels, you know, that are made up of a whole bunch of hard-working veterans from, from World War Two, and, you know, they're here to, it's a modern city with modern problems, and so we need good and modern law officers, sort of a thing, uh, ignoring the, just because it was back then doesn't mean that any of our problems that we currently have weren't, you know, existing in some sort of way or form back then. And on a very subtle way, you know, it's not as in-your-face as, like, a bad lieutenant port of call New Orleans, but there's a, a phrase online, ACAB, all cops are bastards, and this is kind of one of those movies. Even our good guy cop, our straight-laced one, is a political animal who will throw anyone and anything kind of out the window for personal gain. No, yeah, um, this movie is fascinating. I, I really enjoyed, because it, it, it felt like a movie that should have been in the 50s, you know, one of those, um, I guess like a noir story of like the, the, the attractive woman comes to the detective and, gosh, golly, can you please help me? My husband's dead. Except, you know, none of those things happened in this, but like it was, it was all of those kind of same feelings wrapped with like you know the 1997's cast mm -hmm. well and to your point it even it captures that feeling i think through a few things one i think obviously the costuming and the set decoration and all of that really helps capture the period adequately two i think the soundtrack is not really a modern sounding soundtrack they go back and they make it sound like you know an older brassier uh, you know, crime noir story soundtrack. And then I think the third thing is the camera and the movements are oftentimes really, really still. You know, it's not like modern movies where there's handheld cams a lot of the time and some shaky cam kind of stuff and we're doing a lot of cuts and we'll, we'll oftentimes leave the camera on its sticks and just, you know, pan around the room as we follow someone and Sometimes it's a conversation scene and we just really linger on someone for a while. And so I think that the film does a great job of capturing the period really at every level of production. Yeah, and it also I think is very grounded in reality of our our personal um history as as a nation as well by by pulling in real facts and real people and and allowing this to to feel like history you know, being, being, uh, unveiled in front of us, even, even if this is a, a work of fiction, it is, it is historical fiction. No, absolutely, because, I mean, essentially the entire plot is kicked off in the power vacuum after Mickey Cohen, known drug racketeer and, and gangster, descendant of, of Bugsy Siegel and Meyer Lansky and, and the first five families and that sort of thing, uh, after his heroin empire crumbles, after he's been brought in on income tax evasion. And so it has that very, we're tied to a historical reality. If I'm not mistaken, Johnny Stampanato, the guy that um, they go and interview or interrogate at the bar. Um, I'm pretty sure that that was a real Mickey Cohen figure. So kind of like Boardwalk Empire or some other good uh, gangster stories, yeah, it has that weaving in of of reality that helps to your point ground it 
Uh, also, I think it helps that no one's... This is going to sound weird. Everyone's face looks like it's appropriate to the period. Yes. Uh, I think that sometimes when people are making movies that are period pieces, they sometimes cast an actor and they're a perfectly fine actor, but you look at them and go, no one looked like that back then. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's so fair. I mean, you know, you look at somebody as an actor and you're like, yeah, you look like you should be in the 20s or something. You know, I felt like these... They, they did. They looked like, you know, honest Americans of, of the 1950s. Just, I think that they did a, a really, a really good job. And they pulled some, some true gems actors into this, honestly. <laughs> I love Danny DeVito. Absolutely. And I think... I think it's, it's really intelligent in how they also so smartly characterize everyone. Everyone really fully em- embodies their characters and imbues their characters... And it's pretty obvious that they that they are very particularly also calling on archetypes from this genre. The Irish police chief that's that's a little wicked, you know. Uh, the bruiser. The sleazy journalist who's this fast-talking, I didn't come from L.A., but I'm out here now guy, you know. Um, the smooth talker. You know, I think, and they do a really good job at at casting accordingly. You know, Danny DeVito, to your point, is tremendous in this movie. Yeah, and honestly, it's it was it's one of those roles where I was like, yeah, look at look at all of these actors, you know, pushing the limits of what they can do while also still like fitting in in where they're comfortable, you know. Not just Danny DeVito playing a Danny DeVito part, but he's he gets to he gets to have some fun. Yeah, and it's also you know, going into some modern films and stuff like that, I feel like there's this weird thing where you you don't see certain actors, like, cross over in surprising ways, if that makes sense. And this cast, everyone was perfect for their part, but they were almost surprising to see together. Yes. No, yeah. Um, it's a two-hour, 18-minute movie. Uh, it's a very dense movie. And the mystery unfolds very organically, but you do have to pay attention essentially from the moment that the opening narration starts until the end. Yeah, and it it, it truly, um, it was a really interesting view into how far up the ladder corruption truly goes and how how many things as, as you... As you go on the journey with with Guy Pierce's character, you know, he's he's our he's he's our noob. He's our he's our straight laced cop who just wants the truth and realizes that that the system that he thought was safe is really just as bad as as the people who are committing crime, you know, on their own. Yeah, um, and they all start to question their motives for doing it, uh, Bud is in it because he was a victim of crime. Ed is in it because his dad was this paragon for him of justice who got taken down by a guy who got away. And Jack doesn't know why he did it. He's so far removed from himself as a person that he's not even sure of what his motives are anymore. No, and I think that... um. 
I think that his character especially, I think that Jack is one of those those cops that was like, I'm I'm in it for the fame and the glory, and this is the closest thing that I have to celebrity that I can get. I'm not a movie star, so this is this is my movie. You know, he gets to he gets to be the the consultant that comes onto the show and, and gets to gets to tell the actors what it's like to be a cop, even though he doesn't really know how it is to be a cop anymore because he's too busy posing for photos. Yeah, he's doing like dog the bounty hunter cops kind of shit where even though it's not a reality TV show, it's this staged arrest that's meant to create this scandalous headline that's splashy and and gets people to come and read it because it's this scandalous true crime tale here in their hometown. Yeah, their hometown of L.A. (laughs) And so I I think that it's a really interesting movie. I think that it's a smart movie. Um, The reason that I I chose it as, as a Christmas film is because essentially the events are all kicked off on Christmas Eve in the very opening scene of the movie. And it all ties back to this one night of their lives getting upended on Christmas Eve. Yeah, what do they what do they call it? Um Bloody Christmas Eve is the mm-hmm. is the name of the, the, the murder, the, the the scandal that has, you know, rocked the city. And so then they're on this quest to to figure out uh, you know, who they are in the force after this and who they are as as people after this and what they really want. Do they want justice? Do they want vengeance? Um, do they want power? And I think that it's a really, really well done uh, crime mystery. It's, I think, one of the best, you know, neo-noirs of the, of the 90s, neo-noir boom. And I think that it it hits those Christmas notes, if only because it is ultimately about honesty and about repercussion for bad action, which is also a critical part of a Christmas narrative and repercussion for good action as Mm -hmm. well. You know, lump of coal and a present. Yeah, you know, Scrooge story where you you get to follow a bad person and, you know, realize that they're not as bad as they may think they are, the person that they've been putting on for, for society, and they realize the, the, the wrong of their ways and ends up, you know, turning into the butterfly at the end. Even though none of our characters really have that, it is an interesting... Uh, kind of window into into those themes i think the person who probably ends up even though they are presented as kind of the one of the worst cops of the group i think the one who ends up having the most positive transformation is bud because he just decides to leave the corrupt system altogether yes 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 and ends up you know getting the girl in the end and basically stepping away from it all and maybe he didn't get all of the repercussion that he should have gotten for what he did. But he also takes a bullet through the cheek. Yeah, and also you have to look at this w- movie in the window of it being the 1950s where um, cops could get away with a lot more than they can get away with now because, you know, they didn't have cell phones. And forensics was was pretty shoddy back then. So it was really a lot of, like, word of mouth. They... <laughs> I love that they frame like a whole murder on a, on 
innocent bystanders, basically, and get away f- with it pretty much until the end. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even in the end where it seems obvious how things played out, they can craft the right narrative to where no one ever knows the truth. Yeah, the public is is probably the blindest person, you know, in this in this movie. The public never knows the truth, and even if the cops do, they're never going to shame the entire police force in order to to actually fix any of the problems, which feels very eerily familiar. I don't know what you're talking about. No, nope, not even a little bit. Uh, so if you had to give L.A. Confidential a score out of five, what would you give it, dear? That's a really good question. Um, I think I'm going to give this movie a four and a half. I really, I really enjoyed this movie. Um, but, you know, it's long. <laughs> it's long. You have to pay attention. And, and a lot of details, if you're not paying attention, get lost. And I, there were several times where, for me, I just didn't have the right context of history to understand what or who these people were supposed to be. Um, thank goodness for you knowing who all these celebrity lookalikes were supposed to be and these names are, because I had no idea. No, I think that that's really fair. It definitely, you definitely do have to have a certain sense of, of period and what it was at that time and who these people were you know um so no i absolutely see where you're coming from i think that i would also give it a four and a half as well um i'd maybe give it a five but i'll i'll sit at four and a half i think that that's really fair also just a half point for for kevin's presence you know um say la vie Uh, yep (laughs) but uh no i think that's all really fair um, I suppose, since we do have a lot for you, you know, and I don't want to talk y'all's ear off too much, I suppose we'll move on to our next film, which is, uh, from 2002, and it is called Eight Women, and as always, you guessed it, we have a clip, so take a listen. In the dead of winter, trapped by a vicious storm. A wealthy estate will come alive with murder. In a house full of secrets, there are eight suspects. So that was Eight Women from 2002. It is directed by Francois Ozan, and it stars Fanny Ardant, Emmanuel Berard, Danielle Dario, Catherine Deneuve, Virginie Ledoyen, Fermin Richard, Isabelle Hubert, and Ludivine Sagnier. Um, they're all French names, so I'm certain that I butchered that. I apologize to the French. Um, and the premise is one murdered man, eight women, each seeming to be eager than the others to know the truth. Gimme, gimme, gimme some clues to make up my mind and eventually enter the truth. Oh, thou cruel woman. That's a weird, awful, terrible synopsis. I don't know who the fuck wrote that. 
I was thinking the same thing. Hold oh on, my I'm going to find the box. Okay, here we go. I'm going to read you the one that comes off the DVD, because that was shit. Um, an outrageous mystery about a wealthy industrialist who has been found murdered in his home while his family gathers for the holiday season. The house is isolated in a snowstorm, and the phone lines have been cut. Eight women and her as potential murderers. His calculating wife, his two mischievous daughters, his meddling mother-in-law, his neurotic sister-in-law, his sexy sister, the faithful family cook, and the sultry new maid. Each woman is a suspect. Each has a motive. Beautiful, tempestuous, intelligent, sensual, and dangerous. One of them is guilty. Which one is it? That was so much better. <laughs> I feel like this was maybe like potentially in another language, potentially French or Italian, and then got translated, but not really like edited for content, if that makes sense. Well, I'm, I honestly, yes, I'm, I'm just staring <laughs> at the gimme, gimme, gimme some clues. <laughs> <laughs> so I apologize that y'all had to hear me read it. Um, uh, I guess I'll start with this one. Um, this is, again, one that I found on the same list that I found Tokyo Godfathers. And this and Tokyo Godfathers, once I read their synopsis on, on Rotten Tomatoes, I was like, oh, these sound great. Let's definitely do this. Um, and I was familiar with one of the actors in it, Isabelle Hubert. I know her from... I Heart Huckabees, the David O. Russell film. And so I was super into it, and I love a good murder mystery, and uh, I gotta tell you, I think it's absolutely fantastic. I think that it's pretty, pretty batshit. Um, and it's also a surprise musical. So what more could you ask for? I love that none, none of the synopses for this ever said that it was a musical like thank goodness for imdb having these little like genre little blips on here it's like comedy crime musical because that is the only thing that has ever told us that this was a musical and we walked into it very shocked no yeah um but ultimately i still think that on a certain level it works for it it's this very strange uh, melodramatic campy madcap sort of murder mystery and i thought that it was really clever and really well done but far from perfect yes um i wish that i had known i guess how campy it was going to be from from the beginning but it it sure like hits you in the face with it once you like really get started after the first musical number i i was more prepared for what the what the story had in tell for me honestly um, no, absolutely. And like, as far as strengths and weaknesses, um, even though I'm totally good with it being a musical, one of the weaknesses is that most of the songs feel very vertical. You know, we go up in and we leave the song at the same point in the plot, um, as when we started the song, you know, because it's essentially also a jukebox musical. Some of these are French songs from the 60s, 70s, 80s. In this film that is, again, like a a sort of 30s to 50s-ish time period. Very uncertain. Yeah, um, it is 
Oh, gosh. From from the clothing, I would assume it's probably, yeah, somewhere smack dab in the middle of those those two decades that you've said. Um, it's probably, yeah, around the 40s, I would say. This movie is a roller coaster ride, I think, is is my best description of it. And honestly, I had a blast with it, really watching these women kind of figure out who done it while they're they're trapped around Christmas on a, you know, they're snowed in and there's a murderer amongst them and who is it and just just watching the de- the the demeanor f- kind of fade away and all of their their niceties you know, get get torn as as they try and figure out who the murderer is amongst them and it's just a crazy ride when they knock out that old woman i i literally i think i screamed <laughs> <laughs> no cuz like it plays out very, very much like a murder mystery for most of it, and then it suddenly throws in this this little twist, this little change, or this little character beat that really elevates it past just being some sort of plate murder mystery. Um, and some of the songs work better than others. I don't hate all of them, but I think that the songs are probably one of the weaker elements of the movie, if only because they don't feel as naturally integrated as, as they could. I think that that's has a lot to do with how they're they're presented to us. It the the movie is definitely like it looks one way and then we start going into the songs and like the lights dim down and there's a spotlight that comes onto the character who's singing and then the other people start to like quote unquote dance around and it just feels completely out of place and then we and then the lights come back up and it's like it never happened yeah the most effective number of the whole thing is honestly the last one yeah uh there is no happy love i think is what it's called yeah um no i think that i thought that the grandmother song was was probably to your point the the most appropriate and I think that the least appropriate was the first one, was the, the youngest daughter of the murder victim. Her song just came out of nowhere. And when mom and sister started dancing with her, I was like, what drugs do I need to be on? Because <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> um, no, absolutely. Uh, as far as strengths go, I think that for the most part, all of the all of the women are doing tremendous. All of our all of our principal cast, I think, are fantastic. I wasn't um, brought down or brought out by anyone. I really didn't think that anyone was lagging behind. I felt like everyone was doing a really phenomenal job of playing what's obviously, I think, carefully crafted to be their type. Yes, yes. They're all very, very aware of the character they're playing, almost too to parody, I would say. Well, and apparently, if you know some of these actors' filmographies, they have played characters like this before. That makes sense. And so I think that it really works because this is also um, an adaptation. It's based on kind of two things. Uh, the main thing that it's based on is a play... Uh, called Huit Femme, which is not as well-remembered as this movie is. Mostly the play is remembered because this movie exists. Mm, that makes sense. Uh, the other thing that it's based on very loosely is 
uh, a play called and a film called The Women, and he's trying to do this kind of 30s, 40s, madcap American film sensibility. And he's also drawn on like the 50s styles of Hitchcock's first films, which were also, you know, before he started doing Psycho and all of that, you know, he did these kind of highbrow mystery, you know, sort of set inside of a stately manner kind of stories. And I think that that all really plays super, super well in the film. And so I think that all of that is like the strongest stuff. Um, There are two beats in the film that I think make the movie a little bit weird that you could excise. Spoilers following. Uh, And it, it doesn't change a lick of anything. One of them is it, it turns out that the daughter, the eldest daughter, is not actually uh, the patriarch of the family's biological daughter. That's fine. But then you find out that they had some sort of sexual relationship. We don't really get into, into what or how of it, but apparently the baby that she's pregnant with is his. And we never really do anything with that. That just sort of exists in the plot. No, and it's honestly one of the things that really made me mad about this movie because there were just so so many times where I was like, this is this is unnecessary and nobody's talking about it and everybody is blaming it. Like, they were, there was so much infighting with the women themselves that they were willing to blame this this young adult, this this college student for for being pregnant with her stepfather's child with her and we're never really sure either who all knows that yeah and so it just it just feels icky and i and just weird to to blame her when he was clearly the adult in this situation and i mean honestly i feel like that's how we get the ending yeah for sure um and then the other thing is this weird kind of out of nowhere they put in this bit where it's like oh you know I was having an affair with him for years. The maid is like, oh, I was having an affair with him for years. And, and you know, we were having a great time. But I didn't come here to work at the house specifically just for him or to be a maid. You know, I came here because I was kind of interested in you. But then I saw that you kind of, she's saying this to the to the mother of the home. She's like, but then I saw that you're kind of a weak idiot and I didn't, I stopped being attracted to you. And it's, again, one of those things that they just kind of throw out there and leave it. They don't do another thing with that concept. They don't do another thing with that idea. It's just these weird moments that are like, that didn't help my plot. That didn't further it in any kind of way. It's just stuff. Honestly, one of the biggest themes of this movie is sex. Yeah. Having it, being a part of it, sexual attraction, what that means... It's it's really fascinating, honestly, especially considering the time period in which this movie is set. But there's a lot of, like, curiosities of the same sex in this movie, I would, is I guess my best way of stating it. Absolutely. Um, and I think that is also partially just the, you know, maybe this is derogatory in some particular way. I think it's also partially just the French-European sensibility of it a little bit as well. No, I think that I think that that's probably fair. It was it was sexier than I was expecting it to be, honestly. Yeah. Um and I didn't dislike that element to it, but no to your point, I didn't think that it was going to be quite as um you know, vaguely vaguely erotic 
as it is. It's probably one of the sexier Christmas movies you can watch in its own way. That's a sentence in itself. (laughs) (laughs) That's the clip. Um... (laughs) But ultimately, I actually really enjoyed it, and I still found it really refreshing, and even if I have some faults with it, I think ultimately, for me, I don't think the faults outweigh the positives. No, uh, if anything, this movie made me want to know French. Yeah, because they go at a mile a minute. You gotta keep up with that dialogue, man. Them subtitles, they go by quick. (laughs) Yeah, and honestly, it was just just a beautiful language to just hear them talk, even if I, you know... was desperately trying to keep up with the subtitles. I was like, man, these women know French. No, absolutely. And, um... They they know French. They know how to... how to read a scene. They know how to be on screen. Um, they're all fantastic. Oh, yeah. Um, gosh, they're... They're just all doing such interesting, cool jobs. I love that um, the grandmother's photo, random aside, on IMDb is, like, clearly her as a young woman. I'm gonna go out on the limb and guess, yep, she's dead. Oh. Uh, she, she made it to 100 years old. Good for her. 1917 to, to 2017. So, um, no, yeah, she did a phenomenal job. Um, one more thing that I will say about the movie, uh, before I, I pass it off for a rating is since it is based on a play, they go out of their way to try and incorporate that kind of staging and feeling into it. Not unlike the, the film adaptations of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and the producers. Yes. It's very, um, singly, singularly located, um, we usually spend a lot of time like in the foyer and um, very rarely do we do we venture into anybody's rooms. And when we do, it's it's very quick and very minimal. And yeah, to your point, it does very much feel like a play. But that's, I think, why the musical aspect of it is so jarring. Because it's also in in many ways not really exactly like a uh like a theatrical musical number would play no yeah so if you had to rate it out of out of five dear i think i'm gonna give it um i'm gonna give this one a three and a half yes that is what i'm gonna give it i was gonna give it a three and a half as well um just those few little hiccups are enough to to hold it back a little bit um, I, th- well, and also, and I don't want to get into the, into the ending of it, but I think the ending is a little bit messier, and I have a read on it that I think works, but I think that the ending could be improved without getting too deep into it. You know, I don't want to spoil the mystery's ending. Uh, it's a whodunit. So, but for me, the whodunit aspect, the reveal, you know, our moment where our detective gathers everyone and, and pulls back the curtain should in many ways land super, super effectively. And it does in some ways, but not as effectively as it should. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's fair. Um, so I guess moving on, uh, we'll do our final 
movie of the of the criminal Christmas in Bruges. And as always, we have a clip. So take a listen. What is it you've done, Raymond? Murder, father. Why did you murder someone, Raymond? For money. Who did you murder for money, Raymond? You, father. After I killed them, I walked home to await instructions. Get to Bruges. 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 Where's that? It's in Belgium. So that was In Bruges from 2008. It is directed by Martin McDonough, who also wrote it. And it stars Colin Farrell, Brendan Gleeson, Elizabeth Barrington, Ray Fiennes, and Clements Posey. And Jordan Prentice, actually, because he's a pretty integral, integral part of the film. And the premise is guilt-stricken. After a job gone wrong, Hitman Ray and his partner await orders from their ruthless boss in Bruges, Belgium, the last place in the world Ray wants to be. Um, so L.A. Confidential and In Bruges I had seen before. You had seen none of these films. Uh, what did you think of, of In Bruges? Oh, this movie is beautiful and tragic and sad and delightfully filled with, I think, the most Christmassy feels. And I think that that honestly has to do with the location of it being in Bruges, Belgium, which is almost like this weird storybook looking town. And it's it's a really interesting story. I, I really enjoyed it. No, absolutely. So I've... I've seen this film several times, and I know it takes place at Christmas. And when when we've been watching these movies that are sometimes maybe not specifically centered around Christmas, I've really tried to sit down and go, what beyond the setting makes it a Christmas movie? And I think that in a lot of ways, this is essentially a Scrooge story in its own way, and we can dig into that as we go. But I think the location, the narrative structure, um, and and also really what it's about um, thematically, to your point, really ultimately land it hard in a Christmas story because it's about redemption and it's about doing the right thing and it's about goodness and it almost kind of spits in the idea that there is a set naughty or nice list, you know, and that people live on a spectrum of being good or not, you know, because all of our characters have done good and bad to varying degrees, and all of them have to have some sort of um, penance for that in some kind of way. And I think that this one, more than the others, is really effectively, even though it it kind of like almost never really mentions Christmas directly, um, except for the fact that, it, you know, it's openly around Christmas, feels the most like a Christmas story. Yeah, no, and also just like, yeah, I guess it is the setting as well, because the, the city or town, I'm not sure what what we call Bruges but um Bruges Belgium is in in this in the movie is is very decorated for for the holidays and have you know tourists that come here for the holiday experience and 
I just, yeah, it really just has that that nice, warm, fuzzy kind of feeling. Like, I want to go to Bruges. It looks delightful. Well, and it also, it imbues in its finale this kind of strange land visual thing where you're not quite sure how much of what you're seeing is real. You know that it's on a movie set inside of the movie. But it's this all very strange, sort of magical, realist visuals. Um, and I think it's I think it's a really smart movie. Uh, Martin McDonough comes from the world of, of uh, stage and, and being a playwright. And he wrote um, The Lieutenant of Anishmore, The Pillow Man of Anishman, uh, several other other plays. And he really does this kind of thriller crime element um, in all of his works, you know, sort of devious people, the darker elements of society, the darker mindsets people have. And this movie is unabashedly willing to go incredibly dark, but then that makes every single tender moment it has so... Uh, sincere and powerful and moving, I think. No, yeah, and to go off of um, you calling it a Scrooge story, I think that it it gives me asshole lead better than um, no offense to to Bill Murray, but better than like the Scrooged story that he's in, where he just kind of sucks the whole time until he like doesn't. Whereas like you can really see Colin Farrell's character being tormented by by his past but also kind of being oblivious to how he is he's presenting himself to others no that's a really apt point making making a unlikable person your lead is such a gamble because you have to both write it cast it and direct it where the humanity bleeds through they can't be un- insufferable from beginning to end to where you, you're sitting there going, why would anyone ever stick around this person? Why would anyone even talk to this fucking guy? And also, it needs to then, you need to have that core of humanity, that hint of humanity there, so that way when they earn full goodness in the end, it feels... Like it was always there, you know, despite that person's best efforts to not be a nice person. It's there. And that's like uh, what eight crazy nights missed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Whew, yes. Yes, indeed. And honestly, um, it's kind of like comedy. You know, if a, a funny character can't intentionally be trying to be funny. It's just who they are. These are their mannerisms. They're just living their every day. And to us, those things that they're doing honestly are funny. And I think that that is how um, Ray is presented in this with with him being a scumbag. Is like there are times when he is intentionally trying to hurt somebody's feelings or, or be a bad person. But then there are other times when he is kind of oblivious to how he how the things that he's saying or or you know how it's coming across to others can be deemed offensive and i think that that's a it's a it's a fine line no absolutely um and 
McDonough, maybe because he comes from theater, really knows how to, like, weaponize language, you know? Um, kind of like how in the comics, not so much in the show, Negan swears, you know, in the Walking Dead comics, he's very vulgar, he's very crass. Um, and McDonough's very intelligent in how he has certain characters use foul language or use certain slurs or what have you. Um, to either biting effect or to show how small and stupid the person saying it is, you know, and how and how limited of mind that person is. And he uses that, you know, sort of nastier language super, super effectively as well. I think that it's a really, really uh, incredibly done film, and I think that for a first time out as a, as a writer-director of a full-blown movie, he had done a short before this, but I don't think that he had done a feature. I think he does incredible at um, not just writing it, but getting the right performances out of these people. Oh, yeah. I think that everybody is is giving their A game. And it is, it, you almost get lost in the, in the characters. You know, you forget that you're watching Brendan Gleeson. You know, there were times when I was like, hey, Mad-Eye Moody, there you are. But there were other times when I was just like lost in his performance, you know, or um, another Harry Potter alum. Uh, Clemens Posey. Yeah, I think that I I loved her as as Chloe. I think that she did an amazing job. I I I prefer this performance over Fleur. I think that everybody was just really got nurtured in this movie to to give such such brilliant performances. Absolutely. Um, and even though it's set in multiple locations, some of them very big and grand. You know, also at the end of the day, I think that it's got such functional drama that that it could also function as a play. You know, it's because it's it's about characters and it's about them interacting and it's about how they feel about themselves and each other from moment to moment. Yeah. And I think that I think that this is the best medium for this was a movie just because of all of the the graphic nature of the gore and um, just being allowed to to have such big um you know, staging happen, but I do, I do agree. I think that it would be just as effective. It we would just have to, you know, change some things around a little bit. But I think it would be just as effective as as a stage production. Um, and for those of you who don't know, Martin McDonough has done two more movies since then. He's done Seven Psychopaths, and he's done um, Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. So this is all within his wheelhouse, and like. You know, you can go and you can see his his fingerprint in those other works, but I think that this is probably, for my money, his best movie. I think it's his his most successful, most complete, um, and and best executed film, start to finish. Yeah, and honestly, I I loved the fact that it was it was in some random little town in Belgium. It you know took me out of it being in one of my familiar places of the world and. You know, it it can be really isolating to only have movies set in L.A., New York, London, London, Paris, you know, all of these, all of the big cities, because not everybody lives in a big city. And it can be very isolating to to those who who don't have that wealth of knowledge of of the area. And I and I came into this just as blind as as Colin. Um. 
oh gosh, I forgot his last name. Farrell. Colin Farrell's character did, you know, the whole time. He's like, why the hell are we in Bruges? And it's 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 absolutely I, I just just top notch. Well, and um, kind of much like with Hot Fuzz, you know, I think that that look of the town helps Hot Fuzz so much feel like this weird other world, other time place. I think you get the same thing here in um, in In Bruges by setting it in this town. You know, it's it's this weird other world place. Um, to explain the whole Scrooge thing, because I said that I would talk about it more. Spoilers follow. Essentially, Ray has killed a child, and the reason that they're hiding out is because he killed a kid. He killed the kid by accident. He was supposed to kill a priest. He shot through the, the priest, and he ends up shooting a kid who was there to confess his sins, which were like that he was bad at maths and that he was moody. Um, and... So he's been sent there by Harry, Ray Fiennes' character, as like a last hurrah before Brendan Gleeson is supposed to kill him. And Brendan Gleeson is his partner, Ken. And so Ray and Ken are here, and, and Ray can't, can't get with it, and he ends up meeting this woman, Chloe. But Chloe sees some good in him, and so for me, I feel like you kind of get this... Um, Ghost of Christmas past element with with Ken, with Brendan, this person who knows him, this person who has this bond with him, this person who has seen good and bad from him. And then you kind of have this Ghost of Christmas present, this person who sees him exactly as he is right now, some good, some a little bit rough and tumble, but mostly a good guy, and someone who who sees her as good, which is something that she's not experienced. And then you have your Ghost of Christmas Future, this kind of bleak, daunting figure, Harry, who uh, is here to pass judgment. You know, that's really, you know, the Ghost of Christmas Future is death. There's really no two bones about that. The way that we have cinematically drawn him, he usually looks like the Grim Reaper. And I think that you get that kind of same element here with Harry in his long black cloak. And and he's here to, you know, let know, let let Scrooge know exactly what he did wrong and how it's going to end up. And so he ends up converting. And, and, you know, much like Scrooge at the end of his story, he suddenly wants to be good. And so I think that that's the ways in which it really successfully creates this very loose sort of Scrooge narrative. No, yeah, and especially with the with the ending, with the the movie set where we have our our final tete a tete with with Ray and Harry, and um, you were talking about it being very otherworldly, and that is kind of how the Ghost of Christmas Future always feels is like this this really spooky, otherworldly, you know, unescapable force. And I loved it being on the, on the movie set with, with all of the people in there. Very, um, I guess, kind of like the, the, the Black Plague-esque attire. You've got the... Gothic. Yeah, you know, you can't see their faces. They're wearing very creepy masks. And the only person that we really see 
is 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 a symbol of of the child that he has killed you know in the past played by um his name was jeremy i believe jordan uh jordan prentice um who's who's dressed up as a as a school child in in his final scene Mm -hmm. and it's it's all very you know, very thematically linked to to the original story and the the overarching themes of the movie itself, and I just it was it was really interesting, and I honestly would love to to rewatch this movie. I think it deserves it because it is just so so steeped in 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 self reference as well. You know, um, there were, there were times where you were like, oh, because you've seen this so many times where you're like, oh, you know, this leads to this leads to this. And like, I see that now on rewatching it for, for me watching it for the first time, it was all coming at me in, you know, in, in that way, I, I was watching the main narrative. So I didn't get the chance to really sit and watch all of the fine little details that, um, Martin has put into the movie itself and I think that yeah again I think that it would be a phenomenal stage production and I think that it deserves another another rewatch from myself so if you had to rate it out of five what would you give it I think that this movie deserves a five I'm gonna give it five I think that that's fair I'll join you in five um so that has been our look at criminal christmas um, I think all three of them do the job of being a Christmas movie and also highlighting criminality as well. Um, I hope that you all give them a look, a fair warning on, on eight women. Uh, it's going to be a doozy to find it. And unless you want to find it through, um, unlawful means, then you're probably just going to have to, to scratch up and buy a DVD of it. Um, because also the Blu-ray uh, was, I think, only released in Europe, and it is a region-locked Blu-ray. And also, they clearly don't release it a lot, because when I looked at it on Amazon, it was like $67. So, fair warning if you do want to watch it. It's going to be a little bit harder to find, but um, if you think that that sort of thing sounds good to you, worth the watch. L.A. Confidential and In Bruges, much easier to find, much easier to get your hands on. Um, but I would I would suggest watching all three of them. I think that they're all gems in their own way. Yeah, honestly, and if you're you're just tired of the same old same old Christmas, you know, movies, I think giving these a try would be a nice, refreshing, you know, turn of pace. For sure. Um, moving on, I guess we'll sort of close out with our usual sort of stuff. So as far as what we've been watching lately. Uh, the only things that we've watched that aren't related to uh, our theme have been Matrix, the first Matrix movie from 99, which was a rewatch for both of us, but Lauren hadn't watched it in, like, decades. Yeah. And I hadn't watched it in, um, at least, honestly, five years or more. Um, so it was a really delightful go-back. I think that a lot of it really holds up. I think that, um, I think it's a really, really solid experience still. 
Oh yeah, and honestly, um, with the with the new movie coming out, we we really wanted a, a refresh of the original story, and it to to your point, it does still hold up. I think the the Wachowski sisters do a phenomenal job with this movie, and it it aged phenomenally. And even though it's it's set in 1999, it's also like the future and they're just stuck in that time because that was you know quote unquote the best time of human history and and maybe they're right (laughs) um the other thing that we watched uh for my birthday was the new bond film no time to die by carrie fukunaga um i'm familiar with fukunaga i think that he's a great director i thought he brought a lot of his great visual flair and visual sensibility and even some of his his directorial ability to get a good performance out of someone. But I think for my money, it was a little overly long. Yeah, I think that um, I think that Craig does a phenomenal job. And this this movie is very much of like a, a passing of the, the totem of of the bond to to the new. And, you know, we were we're not getting him back. And I'm I'm curious to see where where the franchise goes. It was delightful to see. Oh gosh, um, what's what's her name from from Knives Out and Anna Darmus. Yes, yes, Anna Darmus, fantastic job. Um, she looks great. I want that dress. Um, no, yeah, I I agree though. I think that it was a little lengthy. I could have I could have snipped out some stuff but but still but still overall a good product yeah i think skyfall going on to just bond at large real quickly or craig's run at bond casino royale and skyfall are still pound for pound his best two um quantum i think is much maligned because it came out a few years later and i don't think that people were really expecting a bond movie that was going to be such a true sequel to the one that just happened and it really sort of plays more like a and this is probably a little bit of a detractor to the film it plays a little bit more like an, a protracted epilogue to casino royale than a, a bond story on its own um skyfall is perfect no notes um and then specter is a fucking shit heap it's a fucking goddamn dumpster fire i don't fucking like that movie even by half um, I think it's Craig's worst performance. I think he's asleep at the wheel. I think it's the worst action of any Bond film. And Dave Batista pretty much runs away with every scene that he's in, and that's saying something because he barely speaks. So, not big on Spectre. I thought that it was camp crap that went back to all of Bond's worst possible narrative choices. Well, that's why they undid all of that with this new movie. No, yeah, and so I was about to say, I think that one of the reasons that this movie ends up feeling overly long is that they're like, ah, crap, we gotta kind of get back to where we left off with Skyfall, sort of emotionally, you know, and kind of fix some of our issues of Spectre, so that way we can move on. Um, And so I think that ends up being the thing that makes it so long. No, yeah, but I do think that, um, you know, as as Craig's last rung of this, you know, we've we've had a few movies where where it's a passing of the totem um, in recent history, and I think that this movie does a way better job of feeling like a and this is the end versus um, Black Widow, which uh, is, or Rise of Skywalker. Yeah, which you know, both are just you know asleep 
absolutely asleep. Your your leads hated being in them. And it's quite clearly, obviously, somebody else's movie. No, absolutely. The studios. Um, and so that's kind of what we've been watching lately. Um, as far as movie news, uh, No Way Home just came out. It's blowing records out of the water already. It's done a better opening weekend than No Time to Die did. Um, award season is kicking off. Uh, I'm not going to bore you by listing off the Golden Globe noms, but they came out all over the place for me. Green Knight's not nominated for anything. That's a crime. Um, so yeah, award season, though, is really getting into effect, really kicking into high gear. And we might try and cover some of that a little bit more in depth. Um, but since we've already been talking your ear off for uh, over an hour, what do you think, dear? Do, do we want to let them off the hook? Oh yeah, don't bore them with with award stuff news. Honestly, that that list was was pretty thick and pretty boring to hear. Yeah, that's fair. So I think that that's where we're going to leave it for y'all. Um, next week is episode two hundred. Uh, big deal, two hundred episodes, and we're going to have a special guest. I'm not going to reveal who it is until next week. But be sure to keep an eye on our socials because we've got a really special guest plan for our 200th episode. And we're going to be doing The Green Knight, um, which takes place and ends on Christmas. I mean, can you, if you can guess who it is, I'll, I'll give you a high five because I don't have any money. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, but no, so that's what we have planned for y'all coming up. And then after that, we're going to be doing Gremlins and Gremlins 2. If you haven't already, check out our international Christmas episode. Uh, or our Hanukkah episode from the start of the month. As always, thanks for listening. Check us out on our website, thefilmbuds.com. Email us at thefilmbudspodcast at gmail.com. Um, go and give us a review also, because we need five-star reviews so that way we can get Rotten Tomatoes certified in March. Thank you so much for listening. Have a happy holiday season, you guys. Stay safe. Bye. Bye.